Welcome everybody, meet Tim Ibrahim. He's a general practitioner in Australia. He talks about the importance of finding stressors that lead towards self-improvement. One of the things that he, we talk about is fasting. We go deep into different type of fasting from OMAD to uh, prolonged fasting. He's in fact on his fifth day of fasting out of seven during this interview and he's particularly sharp which was surprising to me we also talk about behavioral tricks towards feeling better in terms of mood and we talk about meditation it's quite an interesting episode you're gonna have fun enjoy Show. Hey everybody, hey Tim, thanks for joining today. I'm excited to have you. I haven't spoken to you in like maybe like a year and a half or so. It's been about a year, I think, since I was last in the US. So yeah, it's um good to talk to you post-COVID, sort of post. I would say in the convalescence of COVID, hopefully. You're in Australia right now, is right? Yes. So right now I'm actually in the Gold Coast. I was in um, Melbourne uh, for most of COVID, uh, which is kind of peak COVID. So I actually, um, I wanted to move to Melbourne to explore because I was very much a, very much a country guy. And so living in the country, I enjoy being rural in the bush, being close to nature. And I was at a stage in my life where I was like, okay, I need to get a bit more social, meet some new people, go out. And Melbourne is really, it's been kind of voted world's most livable city. I don't know who voted that, probably Melbourne people. But um, in the world or in Australia? Yeah, in the world, in the world. Um, for on a number of scales, including accessibility, cost, uh, access to outdoors, nightlife, whatever. Um, and I was really keen on exploring because I've lived in country Victoria my whole life and I've visited Melbourne. I was very excited to go. So I planned my move to Melbourne, um, moved to Melbourne just prior to uh, my holiday where I went to visit yourself and a whole bunch of other people and get some mentorship um, do some work on myself and my social skills and my business skills. Mm -hmm. And then came back from that in peak COVID and everything was shut down. So it's kind of, it's, and I think it was a quite a long period. So, uh, a lot of people with a positive mindset here, okay, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade right mm -hmm. and so for the first period of shutdown well initially like yourselves i'm sure you were sold it's going to be two weeks you know two weeks to flatten the curve for the icus to calibrate and get used to the new systems and then everything will be back to normal we'll just deal with people as they come in and that two weeks just kept on extending out to four months and then that opened things up for about three weeks and then shut down again so a total of about nine months of complete shutdown where basically small and medium businesses suffered greatly. People were stuck in their houses. Um, there was no, you, you could only leave your house for four reasons. It was like to get supplies, 
uh, from the big supermarkets because the small grocers all had to shut down uh, to provide essential health care, to go to work if you were allowed to go to work. And I think there was another one. Uh, so it was very, oh, you were allowed, I think, 30 minutes of exercise with a mask if you were like in a group of two or less. Um, wow. Only 30 minutes. It was, it was really strict. So, um, and this kind of, so the second shutdown really, I think took a hit on everyone. So I was still working out in my own garage, trying to do the best that I could um, with, you know, working on my own business, et cetera. And with the second shutdown, I thought this is, this is getting really bad. I was expecting domestic violence to go up. I was still working as a general practitioner. And for your American audience, a general practitioner is similar to what uh, a, like a family doctor would be in America. Um, it's basically a primary healthcare physician. So you don't need a referral to see a general practitioner. And you can't see a specialist in Australia without seeing a general practitioner first. So you need a referral from a general practitioner. Um, with the exception of if there's an emergency, then you just go to the call an ambulance, they take you to the emergency department. That's a type of specialist. But for non-urgent things, you should be seeing a general practitioner. And then from there, the general practitioner has to deal with a whole host of, so we're specialists in undifferentiated illnesses. Mm -hmm. And then you look at these undifferentiated illnesses and it's actually quite hard to do because say you have major depression, you don't start by hitting all the DSM five, are we up to five now? Yeah, DSM five DSM criteria five. for major, major depression. You only, you, you only hit one of the criteria to start off with before you get the second and the third. And so sometimes our subspecialty colleagues can look very, uh, look down on the general practitioners because it's obvious when they've received the patient, because once they've received the patient, they've had the tincture of time, they've had a, a whole workup, uh, they've been to the emergency department, they've had whatever investigations they've needed for any specialty, and then it's crystal clear that they're dealing with a subarachnoid hemorrhage and not a migraine. Um, but for the general practitioner dealing with the sentinel bleed, um, and so again, for your audience, like a sentinel bleed is like, you've got a berry aneurysm in your brain. This is a very rare condition. And then you might, before it completely bursts, it might just leak a little. And this is an extremely rare occurrence unless you're a neurosurgeon. If you're a neurosurgeon, it's something that neurosurgeons deal with day in and day out. Mm -hmm. But for a general practitioner, they'll probably see about one in their lifetime. So this person presents with a sentinel bleed and you've kind of got to work out, is this one of the like thousands of tension headaches I see you know, mm -hmm. every month or is this a migraine or mm -hmm. could this be the one that's going to catch me out? And that really takes a lot of work. So I have a lot of respect for them. Um, I entered the profession myself, obviously, but uh, doesn't come with a lot of, societal status or status mm. within the profession or respect within the profession or money really like well i guess i don't know how it is in australia 
but originally when I, where I'm from in Ecuador, general practitioners are one of the most loved specialties by the patients. Um, mm. Mostly because in, 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 at least in Ecuador, general practitioners take care of almost everything because the, mm. the specialists are so scarce and so difficult to get to and it takes forever that the general practitioner kind of has to figure it out. And, and yeah, sure, they may not be able to treat a sentinel bleed as you were talking about. They may have to send them to the neurologist, but overall they, they become sort of part of the family in the sense that they, mm. they, take, care of your, uh, of, they take care of your physical needs, the, the physical issues of you and your whole family. And then mm. if you're depressed or there's some mental health issue, they, they, they may try to help too, right? Like uh, the, the, it's the first line. And so these doctors become sort of like the doctors of, uh, of little cities or, or towns, et cetera. And the whole town reveres them. And, mm. depend, and, and depend, like I know that it, several friends of mine, it, we in Ecuador are required to do one year of general practitioner medicine before right. we're able to do our residency. I wish that was the case in the in Australia as well. It's not quite the case in Australia, but I'm sorry to interrupt. But what you're saying is actually quite true in Australia as well, especially in rural communities. So I was in a rural community for the majority of all my general practice train or all of my general practice training and a few years afterwards. Um, and when you're rural, you really do take care of almost everything including we had a small like an emergency department and you'd be on call and you'd come in for people with chest pain or had fractured something i would take x-rays i would do uh, deliveries and cesarean sections um with another uh, gp and ethetist so um and the people that had been there for a long time had a lot of uh clout within that community you know to the point that you you get pulled over at night time because it's just a random test. And then they'd see that it's you. It's like, oh, sorry, doctor, you must be working. Off you go. Um, and that's a nice thing to have. That's a nice thing to have. But if you, and to a lesser degree, I think that's also the case in the city. Uh, but that takes time and you can't be moving a lot. And um, I have been living a very nomadic lifestyle. So I, I enjoy travel. I enjoy exploring new areas. And when is this podcast coming out, by the way? Two days from now. Two days from now. That gives me mm -hmm. enough time. And I'll probably be moving to the Gold Coast. I still need to tell my previous employer or practice. So wait. So yeah, you, we were talking about yesterday. You were negotiating some sort of job. So you got your new job. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they've sent me the contract. I'll sign it. I'm happy with how it's going to go. Um, mostly... And I was torn about this because I've been focusing quite a lot on mental health. Um, general practitioners, something like 12% of presentations to a general practice in Australia is mental health related, which is in the top three. Um, but the majority of the mental health burden is actually dealt with by general practice as well. So access to psychiatry and psychology is is quite limited, um, despite uh, there's a, so there's a large concentration of psychiatrists in cities, 
again, in rural areas, because for a number of reasons, people don't want to live in rural areas and you can't pay them enough to kind of keep them there. Um, general practitioners deal with it a lot. And the amount of training that we have as GPs is very limited uh, in mental health. So uh, through med school, you given some you know, rudimentary training in psychiatry, but when very you finish, rudimentary. I don't know how when it you was finish medical those... school. Go ahead. Yeah, go on. Oh, what I was going to say is, um, I think when you finish medical school, you know nothing except really the language. Like yeah. you know how to speak the language of medicine, and you know how to think about certain medical problems. You've been given a framework to think about it, but you're not really. Um, you can't really actually do anything yet. Uh, and through GP training, we probably had one or two, maybe three days on depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, and motivational interviewing. That's kind of it. But really you have to teach yourself. And so mostly what I did was when I was going through some of my own personal problems, I read a lot on acceptance and commitment therapy Mm-hmm. kind of almost self-help bibliotherapy as I think um, what's his name the guy that wrote six pillars of self-esteem and feeling good no no feeling good who wrote feeling good you know the one um, I, yeah I, I know I know I know the books I don't, I don't know Jamie I don't can you look that up books. sorry I'm just gonna do let that randomly ask, yeah let me ask Jamie okay Jamie's yeah. like working this out yeah um, okay so while you're doing that, um, David Burns, David Burns. Yeah. So he's actually, I worked halfway through David Burns's book as an audio book, but you really need to have that as a physical book because there's so many exercises you actually need to do. And he's actually come out with a new book in the last year mm. in peak COVID. So now I'm not sure whether I should get his like seminal feeling good or the new one, which is meant to be kind of, a revised edition of that as a psychiatrist what do you think of his work or um yeah well i don't remember feeling good but i definitely read six pillars of self-esteem and i think it's an excellent book it it really helps you to understand what it is that is going to make you feel better and it helps you do it log- like with an, from a logistical standpoint. Um, mm. So, and, and we can talk a little bit about mental health in the setting of um, primary care, which is how we would call it in the US and, and in, in just general terms, right? Pete uh, talks about the importance of compounding. The, I, I can't remember all the pillars right now because I read this book a couple of years ago, but one thing that stuck out in me that was, I thought, it, it's obvious as well as genius is the idea of compounding, right? Do you think of compounding interest about your retirement savings, if you're saving money for your retirement mm. and, and the importance of it because over a period of years and decades, you will make a lot of money just by accruing uh, interest and then mm-hmm. investing that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then mm. it's the same for your habits and the same for your life. So if you, are doing a little bit better let's say at in eating your eating habits you're maybe mm. being a little bit more mindful of the 
quality of the meals that you have. Maybe you eat less fried foods and that's your goal for February. And then you, mm. but you, but you quantify it, right? Like I will eat fried foods like two days out of the 28 or 29. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you, you keep that for a month and then the next month you're like, okay, I'm going to do that only for one day. Okay. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then you go positive instead of like reducing negative things, you go positive. Okay. I'm going to eat this amount of fiber per day. And then you do that. And then at some point that, that like at the beginning, when you're starting a new habit, it, it, it requires a lot of energy, a lot of mental energy, mm. a lot of uh, mm -hmm. preparation, etc. But once you do it mm. for a period of time, that becomes just your normal pattern of behavior. And then mm. you do that. And then you do, you add the, when it becomes a, your pattern of behavior that is normal, it doesn't really require any extra energy. So you have the bandwidth to start one other thing. And as long mm. as you continue adding one thing to another, to another, until you die, you really are compounding your efforts to be healthier, to be smarter. You can read a little bit every day, uh, do a certain amount of exercise every day, uh, audit uh, your interpersonal relationships at the end of the day. Like what, what did we talk about? Was it something that made me feel better? Was it something that made me feel worse? Was this person... Is this person like good in my life? Is this person not good in my life? I mean, am I feeling good with this interaction? Like, I'm just like thinking about it and making a little action towards it, even mm. though it seems almost meaningless at the beginning. Mm. If you add something every day for as meaningless as it is, it is mm. not meaningless because one year has 365 days. So you're talking about at minimum. 365 little things little tweaks to optimize your That's, life uh, the book uh reminds me of one percent better okay. and also uh, a book by james clear called atomic habits where he talked about the british racing team and how they did exactly that uh they got a new racing coach um this was racing for cycling sorry i should specify and um he tweaked he brought a surgeon in to show them how to wash their hands properly. He um, painted the inside of their truck that moved their bikes white so that they could see any dust and clean it out. He gave them uh, better shorts and clothing to wear. He um, worked out which pillows were best for each of the cyclists so they could have a better night's sleep. And they brought those, those pillows with them on their thing, on their uh, tours. And they, he did all these tiny little tweaks, which seem insignificant, but what the coach called it was the aggregation of marginal gains. And that aggregation of marginal gains eventually does compound. But the problem is as human beings, we have this um, cognitive bias towards short-term and that mm. kind of served us evolutionarily because there was no guarantee that we were gonna be in a society where we're going to live to a mean of, you know, 76, 80 years, something like that. Um, but that aggregation of marginal gains and that uh, long-term thinking is actually what makes a big difference in mental health. So um, one of my mentors, one of my general practitioner mentors had a very good common sense approach I liked, or I resonated with to uh, dealing with, depression and anxiety, which was the major burden of mental health illness. And he would say that, you know, when you break your leg, you get a cast 
and you get crutches. Mm -hmm. the, the crutches help you function, but it's actually the cast that fixes the bone and helps you heal in the right way. And if you have bad depression or anxiety, we may give you some SSRIs or some tricyclic antidepressants. They're the crutches, they're not the cast. They will help you deal, they'll help you function in society. They'll help you do the things that you need to do to make your life better. Um, because I think there is to some degree a benefit in feeling a little bit depressed or anxious. It's, it's a feedback thing to tell you, oh, maybe your life is not on the right track right now. You're not living in alignment with your purpose, with who you are, with your relationships. Something is not right. And yes, there's definitely a chemical imbalance that occurs. But the question is, is that the chicken or the egg? I mean, there's genetic factors that come into play as well. But, and again, if we're talking about genetics, I think, and I sometimes get into trouble with my patients. So I try and say it this way. Um, genetics loads the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. And that can be in relation to diabetes. So for example, if you eat a highly processed, high carbohydrate diet over the course of your lifetime, you're more likely to get diabetes type two. And that can lead to heart attack and stroke and et cetera. Um, but the reason, and the reason that another person can eat that same diet and not get obese or not get type two diabetes is purely a function of genetics. But that's like saying, um, it's not fair that I can't spend as long in the sun as this darker skinned or, you know, black or American, uh, African-American person that has very dark skin why is it that I get skin cancer? Why is it that I get burnt and he doesn't? Well, there's genetics involved, but the cause is still the sun. And so you just have to taper that. So with mental health, coming back to mental health, some people, um, for whatever reason, have a genetic predisposition to depression or anxiety. And for those people, it's even more important to deal with the basics. And just like a plant needs some sun, and needs to be watered like the human psyche needs positive socialization needs exercise needs a healthy diet and this isn't woo-woo stuff i mean this is i mean th there have been studies out there that have shown that exercise outdoors is more effective than antidepressants for mild to moderate depression um, walking down the forest yeah, the forest bathing is what the Japanese call it, right? Um, and uh, Professor Felice Jacker from, I think it's Deakin University in Australia. She has uh, done a number of uh, talks that are available on YouTube um, and has a book talking about the, the gut-brain axis, uh, axis um, and how just changing to a more Mediterranean style diet, which isn't my favorite diet, but you know, whatever changing, it's still better than the standard American or standard Australian diet. Um, changing to a more Mediterranean diet with less processed foods uh, helps people with depression, anxiety, and schizophrenia function better um, and their symptoms improve. That's massive stuff because when a lot of people are living symptoms, on junk food. When you're talking about symptoms, do you mean positive symptoms or negative symptoms? Uh, that's that's out of my scope. I can't 
remember. So that would be something that I'll have to get back to you on at some stage. But um, my recollection, it was more about how they functioned and with mm. their ability to function and the overall effect that the disease had on their life. You know, but, it's it, I like everything that you're saying because it talks a little bit about this compounding thing that we were talking about before. Just, you know, the stressors of life, uh, which are <clears throat> in, inevitable, some, especially mm. during the pandemic, right? Like this and level... sometimes good. To a certain degree, the stresses are good and necessary. Sure. I, 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 well, I, I think that sometimes a good stressor in terms of um, if I have a lion next to me and I don't freak out, I might get eaten. I 100% agree. Like I need the fear. I need the the this like hyper uh, alertness that danger could give me. I think that I agree with what you're saying to some. So, okay, let, let's unpack a lot of what you said. At the beginning, when you were talking about depression and anxiety and some degree of stressors as a feedback mechanism, um, to tell you that there's something that going is going on in your life that you need to pay attention to. A, a lot of that is true. Um, in in and I would say I would say in, in a lot of cases of uh, mild to moderate depression and anxiety, you know, even severe sometimes too. But but there's always outliers that are that that we just don't necessarily understand why this is happening, and. And that's also something to take in, into consideration. But taking those outliers out of this conversation, I agree. Um, it, it is interesting how these little things can help and how think. Okay, let's start with the little things, the, the sleep. If you don't sleep well for a prolonged period of time, you're going to feel more tired. You're going to have mm. less of a a uh, mental buffer to deal with the issues that normally happen in your life, you're going to be more prone towards depression and anxiety over the long term. Now, mm. at the same time, if you normally sleep great and then you suddenly don't sleep for a day, you may have a euphoric feeling the day after, um, which back in the day, I, I think before antidepressants were part of the equation, and sometimes even some people will do it, some therapists will do it, they will have you not sleep for just overnight so that you can remember how it feels to be euphoric and a little bit on the happier side. It'll go away after a day, but but that's like something that some people do. Hmm. Um, then diet. I think that there's so many types of diet. I would say that there's no perfect diet, and it and I and I would argue that the way that you eat should be the way that you eat it, it, it aimed for the specific individual there's some general terms that we know mediterranean diets great in general um, some people do great eating massive amounts of protein uh, and some people do great eating vegetarian some people do great eating vegan there are studies that say that you're more prone to be depressed if they're vegetarian there's these are potentially biased studies but there's there's so much evidence and also not necessarily excellent, excellent level of medicine, uh, uh, of evidence for these different types of diets. But what we can all agree on is that processed food, 
probably not good for you. If you stick to good like fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, and some sort of protein, whatever that is for you, and you don't overdo it or underdo it, you will probably be okay. And in, and, and this is and these are the little things that compound as as you're as long as you're eating well and sleeping well and exercising and and ideally you want to have a, like strong exercise right you 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 want to get exhausted once a day if you could and the combination of these three things are going to make you uh, they're going to make you feel a little bit better than the people that don't do it in general you you'd be more likely to to be prone to to enjoy things around you if you don't do it you're going to be more likely to to be affected by things around you and there are other things that compound it too like meditation if you add to your general say a uh, to the general sleeping well eating well exercising well meditating every day then you're suddenly compounding all of those things suddenly you become a little bit more mindful you're able to listen to your body and listen to your mind a little bit more and that really opens the door for even more things that then they are when you become more self-aware you are gonna be feeling your feelings in real time all the time and then that's very helpful because then you'll be having a conversation with somebody and then during that conversation you will either notice yourself getting happier or notice yourself getting angrier or notice yourself getting in any particular direction and if you pay even more attention you'll be you'll be able to know what exactly is triggering this thing and then you you'll realize oh i'm saying this thing but i don't mean to say this thing why am i doing that and then you suddenly start catching some patterns of behavior that come maybe from the way that you were raised or the, or the culture that you mm. came with and these mm. are uh, and this also comes back to the nature and nurture genetics versus environment there's you're right there's genetics there's environment there's temperament and I'll, but 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 what can we access to and what can we modify we can modify our behavior and mm. and and that's like i in my opinion one of the best things that we can focus on regardless on what wh whatever it is that created these thought patterns or created these physical behaviors or these cravings or whatever it is that we're experiencing that is detrimental to our life right now mm. then you find yourself having these habits that maybe come from your so maybe from genetics, maybe from the way that you were raised, maybe just because you didn't sleep well last night. So you address the little things to, to have like a good baseline level of functioning, just the, the physiological baseline habits. And then you go a little bit more subtle and start auditing your behaviors and start auditing your thoughts and start auditing your emotions and start auditing on why do they happen and when do they happen and with whom do they happen and then you'll mm. be you can modify like more like general things like the people like you you can probably be like oh these kind of people tend to make me feel worse when i hang out with them these kind of people tend to make me feel amazing so I probably should hang out with the people that are making me feel amazing as long as they're not giving you some sort of drug that is making you feel amazing, right? Like as long as it's like something and you find, oh, and in general, if they're making you feel good in general, this is not always the case. 
but in general it's because maybe you're learning you're feeling better about yourself because they're actually they're able to see something in you that maybe you were not able to see you're learning some like some sort some sort of patterns that maybe you didn't know before that are just pushing you upwards in this like uh, uh, just making you feel more uplifted so then you 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 choose to spend more time with, with people that make you feel better and then you choose mm -hmm. to spend less time with people that make you feel worse sometimes it's hard sometimes it's it's almost impossible sometimes your family members make you feel worse and then you're like oh how do you I deal with that and then there's multiple ways to dealing with that but that's one like general way then you have more internal okay let's say you have your friendships organized in such a way that it, they really uplift you and then that's good that compounds too the, the, i was just talking with a friend of mine yesterday we were we were um snowboarding through the day nice. and then and then we were coming back and we, uh, on the drive home and and we came up with like all these business ideas and we were laughing whatever and we were having a really good time we were being thoughtful and insightful in our conversations about like life and emotions and and kind of like a little bit like what we're doing right now and we came up with a synergistic level business that, that that could be very good for him and very good for me and very good for society and and well and and, and then i'm thinking well yeah this is a friendship that i definitely want to have because it makes me feel so much better and it's good not only in terms of the emotions that it causes me but in in, in terms of the productivity and the value that it brings to my life and then, so that's one thing, right? And then the other thing is like, besides the friendships, besides the, the, the physical habits, okay, mental habits, meditation, but then thought patterns. We, we carry so many thought patterns from, the, from the, the, the food that we eat will cause certain patterns of thinking. The, if you drink a lot of alcohol, you will have a certain pattern of thinking. If you drink, if you eat a lot of fried heavy foods, you will tend to store lethargic, non-finished, unfinished thoughts. If you're mm. like uh, very, drink a lot of coffee, have a lot of spicy food, you'll be like, doo -doo -doo, maybe a little bit too fast. Um, mm. And so on and so forth. They are your Vedics divided beautifully into Tamas, Sattvas and Rajas type of meals. You've lost me there, but that's okay. Oh yeah, sorry. Like, so there's this type of, you know, we have allopathic medicine. And then yep. there's also Ayurvedic medicine, which is a, a, an Indian old, old school type of medicine that existed before allopathic. Mm. And they, mm. they would, they would uh, blend uh, yoga philosophy with um, healing. And basically... They talk. I, I'm gonna butcher it because I don't know exactly like the, the details to, to the degree of a philosopher or maybe a uh, a monk a yogi. or or like a hardcore yogi in the mountains or a, or a, an Ayurvedic doctor, which still is, exists. When you go to India, you can go to an Ayurvedic doctor or an allopathic doctor, depending on how you want to be treated. Basically, they talk about physical existence existence being divided into different styles of matter and and, and and like all things have different states and there's three typical states one called tamas one called rajas and what one called sattva um, mm. 
and then one of them, Thomas tends towards lethargy and you can describe a human being that tends towards lethargy. And then there will be certain typical patterns of behavior for this human being or uh, from the foods that he or she eats will tend to be tamasic. And they have that categorized, all these things are gonna make you uh, go towards lethargy. And it's not, not a mystical thing. Like they talk about heavy fried things heavy proteinic fried things, um, a lot of starch, stuff like that. Um, then there's and a, that, like, go, go there's so much for me to riff on there from what you've said. It's, um, it's really quite amazing. And I think coming back to what you were saying earlier about that synergy when two people just like click and get things going. I noticed this when I was in the US as well. And finally, I found myself amongst or among a whole bunch of people that actually think in a similar way to me because when i go through day-to-day -day life i don't find myself thinking the way other people think and i don't know why that is i don't think i'm necessarily better than them You're but there's a way i'm a snowflake i'm definitely a snowflake <laughs> but so i'm gonna riff back on what you were talking about so first of all this whole how do i pronounce it eru Ayurveda. A Ayurveda, the Ayurvedic medicine. So I've heard the term bandied about. I don't know much about it, but, um, and most people in medicine would say bullshit. It's not evidence-based medicine, forget about it. And then there'll be this other group that just says, it's all true, just believe it, that's that. Don't get your chemotherapy for your cancer, just do that, mm -hmm. Ayurveda. And I think what really needs to happen is we need to, and this applies in so many different fields. This, uh, this is what's, we're going into silos right now, politically, uh, on our social media, we're just getting positive feedback loops. We click on people we agree with, we don't click on people we don't agree with. And this is, this is called, I believe this is what's leading to what's happening in the US right now, where two political parties, can't even acknowledge that there's any validity to someone else's point. And for some reason, well, that reason is groupthink. One group will think one thing. So for example, if you believe that abortion is a good thing, then it's very likely I know what your uh, social policies will be and your financial policies will be or your gun policies will be. And why do those two have anything to do all those things have anything to do with each other it's because you want to be part of a tribe but um when i was listening to sam harris and jordan peterson debate one of the best things i got out of that out of that was actually brett weinstein or weinstein talking who is um the moderator for one of those debates talking about um literal truth versus metaphorical truth so and what he was saying was, you know, with Christianity, say you don't believe, you're not a Christian, you don't believe in the faith, you're not literally going to go to heaven and have some wings and go to the pearly gates or whatever when you die. Um, there's no evidence, concrete evidence that that's going to happen. Um, it's nice to believe that. So what what's the deal with with all these beliefs that have gone throughout the ages? Well, the, the deal with that is, you actually get an evolutionary benefit to believing those things. So if you take a more simple example, 
all guns are loaded. All right. So if you go around believing that all guns are loaded, if you have a gun in your house, you're not going to play cops and robbers with your child and point the gun and go bang, bang. So the people that believe all guns are loaded are going to live longer and are going to die less from gunshot wounds than people that have a more laissez-faire attitude because they know for a fact that not all guns are loaded. So even though it's not literally true that all guns are loaded, there's an evolutionary benefit to believing that. And this is something that uh, Dr. Russ Harris, who's an Australian GP and has written a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy, talks about. He says, um, don't ask us when you're analyzing your own thoughts, don't ask yourself, is this thought true? Ask yourself, is this thought useful? If it's a useful thought to have, then maybe you can have it multiple times, although probably there's not much benefit to thinking things more than once. You should probably write it down and systematize it. But nonetheless, all guns are loaded is a useful thought to have. And so in the past, believing that pigs were unclean was actually a useful thought to have for two reasons. One, you were part of a tribe. And so you identified with them and not the people that liked pigs. And two, pigs were omnivores like humans, as opposed to sheep, which were ruminants and other animals. And so you're more likely to get parasites even before germ theory. If you believe that you should wash your hands five times a day, yes, you're part of a tribe that washes their hands five times a day or whatever, but you're also less likely to get diseases. And this is why um, in the Black Plague in London, um, people blamed the Jews for bringing the Black Plague because they didn't die of it. And the reason mm. they didn't die of it was because they didn't leave their excrement out the front of their house. They had very religious reasons for believing, uh, for dealing with their excrement. And they washed their hands more than people that were non-Jewish. And so again, before germ theory existed, certain behaviors tend to propagate if there's something useful. And so with your Ayurvedic medicine, there may be some truth to what's going on. Now, teasing out the actual scientific benefit of some of those things and what's actually true versus what's woo-woo is hard. Um, but I don't think when it comes to looking at ancient cultures or religions, um, I don't think we should be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There is some wisdom. That's why it's existed for so long. And I think that's part of the reason why someone like Jordan Peterson has resonated with a lot of people because he is a little bit of what you'd say is a Christian apologist without necessarily identifying as Christian, um, which is interesting. Um, so so before, yeah. before we start talking about Jordan Peterson, I just want to... I'm not going to talk about Jordan Peterson any further. I was going to go on to behavior modification and free will, but that's okay. Oh, wow. So you, you, do you have a bullet list of the top things that we While you talking? were talking, I've taken a lot of notes. <laughs> Got it. You know, uh, I right, think you, you, you make me think of evidence and mm. and how allopathic medicine hey i'm part of the part of the gang of allopathic medicine that's what i do mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and i believe in evidence and i like the way that we try to bring evidence forward and at, and also 
see its limitations, right? It's it even at the highest level of medicine uh, of evidence, you always find flaws, and a, and a lot of what we think twenty years from now is not what we think. And I think that's all due to context. So I think if you look at evidence based medicine and you're looking at the I put a kind of tongue-in-cheek post up recently um, from a, like it was a meme just about the difference between horses and crocodiles. And there was like a checklist of like six or seven different things where horses have pointy ears, crocodiles don't have pointy ears. Um, they both weigh less than 250 tons. They both were not responsible for the death of Princess Diana. Um, and they were both like, if you threw a sugar cube at them, they would probably eat it. So given that's what we know, the best way to tell the difference between a horse and a crocodile is whether or not the animal has pointy ears. So that's kind of when you look at evidence-based medicine, asking a specific question, expecting a particular answer, that's what happens. So with, um, for example, with the whole diet thing, you'd have a whole bunch of people trying to prove after Ansel Keys came out with the seven nation studies, et cetera, and there's this hypothesis that the Mediterranean diet was good because it was low in saturated fat and that led to heart disease. Um, he tried to, or people tried to prove this by doing multiple studies to show that margarine was healthier for you than butter. And they never came up with the right conclusion. And they said, well, insufficient evidence, butter is basically probably worse for you than margarine. We need to do bigger studies. More studies are needed to be done in this, in this area. But if you have a look at, back at it with the context of evolutionary biology and the fact that we're omnivores and look at how we used to eat millions of years ago and there was not one diet and i'm not advocating one particular diet or one particular way of eating i'm just saying we should be looking at um what humans definitely didn't eat and what most had then it becomes quite clear when you look at like the sydney heart study for example that yeah actually butter is fine um and that's kind of been exonerated now but people don't like to say including the american heart association association we were wrong um so um i, I yeah. just remembered that you're fasting right are you fasting right now so i'm day five into a seven day fast how's that going um it's interesting uh I've done one fast before that was seven days, uh, four or five years ago. Um, but mentally I feel like I'm there. I've been like negotiating job contracts and deals and going out. Um, I want to preserve muscle mass. So I've actually been seeing a personal trainer every day for the last seven or eight days, um, and going to the gym and the, first personal trainer I was seeing when I was in Brisbane was giving me high intensity training. So mm -hmm. hit, um, so with short gaps in between and by the last workout, I could only do 45 minutes and I was gassed because it really depletes your glycolytic pathway. I don't have a lot of glycogen, so that's not great. But, uh, this new personal trainer I'm seeing while I'm in the gold coast, I said, look, I just want to focus on the big four lifts for powerlifting and technique so that I've got larger gaps in between, I can lift heavier weights. And that seems to be working for me. I feel like my body feels quite flat, like, like fatigued, to be honest, like going up the stairs to get to this room felt like a little bit of an effort, 
um, my hunger has definitely subsided. But like mm. I was out in the Gold Coast last night and, um, you know, I met a girl and we went to go to get some kebabs and she had a kebab and I really could have gone with the kebab right then. So when the food's in front of me, even things like having a little bit of pink Himalayan sea salt has never tasted so good in my life. It's, hmm. it's interesting, but, um, so uh, why are you people... fasting? Okay. Um, few reasons. Uh, I'm definitely someone that, so as opposed to say, uh, okay. So as far as weight loss goes, that's one component of it. And most people would say weight loss is just a matter of, calories in versus calories out and having a negative caloric deficit and to a certain extent that is true in fact that is true you can't beat the laws of physics but things change so your basal metabolic rate will not stay the same if you're having a low calorie diet so your calories out will be less um furthermore it's easier to do nothing than it is to do something so if you, if you decide you're going to have no sugar or if you were vegan and I offered you a steak, you'd say, no, thanks, I'm vegan. If I offered you a cigarette and you're a non-smoker, you'd say, no, thanks, I'm a non-smoker. There's no willpower that is depleted. There's no decision fatigue that accrues throughout the day saying no to something that you pre-decided is not part of you and you don't even get the craving or the urge. Trying to eat less on a regular basis uh, – some I've read somewhere that we make in excess of a hundred food related decisions a day. And this is abnormal for human beings. You know, again, my, one of my main frames, my main mental models or paradigms is evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. And that's not from the point of view of survival of the fittest. Fuck everyone else, excuse the language, but it's from the point of view of, you know, we would have been part of a tribe that had to work together to survive. And so the alpha males were the people that could bring more value and that other people wanted around. Um, but also we needed to be resilient, which came back to your use stress versus distress. Um, and I think stress is a good thing to a certain degree. We do need a level of stress to be resilient human beings, which is philosophically, I'm someone that actually believes that it's better to teach a toddler to swim than it is to put a fence around. Um, like as soon as a kid can walk and can get around or as soon as it can crawl, put it in the water, start teaching it how to swim. And that's much better than putting a fence around the pool. But we're in the kind of a culture of safetyism and reducing any kind of external insults, which is actually impossible although it's getting closer and closer. And that's what led to the, the lockdowns. You know, the emphasis with how Australia and Victoria has been dealing with these lockdowns has been, let's just protect everyone, especially for the old people, because we don't want the older or the immunocompromised to get sick. As a doctor, I don't want the older or the immunocompromised to get sick, but there definitely hasn't been enough emphasis on the fact that low vitamin D has been linked to um, increased risk of getting uh, a bad illness when you get COVID and metabolic dysfunction has been linked to getting a much worse illness if you get COVID. Now, it's not a be-all, but an end-all. Like there are some cases of healthy people that have gotten very sick or died from COVID. It has about a 1% mortality. 
but 100 years ago, or 200 years ago, we wouldn't have stopped at a 1% mortality. We wouldn't have stopped society, stopped being human beings. We're not robots. We don't live on social media. We need touch. We need physical connection. We need um, what you're talking about, that synergy when you're going with someone snowboarding. This is part of the human experience. And we are making ourselves weaker. We're making ourselves less resilient and more dependent on big organizations like healthcare and Amazon and the government to look after us. And then we'll just become even weaker. Uh, so this kind of saddens me. And this is, again, part of the reason why I think it's a good thing to go through a period of difficulty every now and then, whether that be fasting or whatever. Um, the first time I tried to do a seven day fast this year, I failed miserably because I had been eating very poorly prior. I had been eating more processed foods, etc., And so I got what they call the keto flu. I don't know what the scientific. I've got an um, for sure. I don't know what the scientific underpinnings of it are, but there's been enough uh, people talking about it, uh, anecdotal evidence for me to think it's an actual thing. But a number uh, but of times there, I've started a fast. I think there is evidence for the keto flu in the sense that you are transitioning from the production of energy uh, based on ketosis. Well, um, I mean, I yeah, so yeah that's that's a fact so your your mitochondria are metabolizing ketones versus metabolizing carbohydrates and sugar yeah. basically because carbohydrates have to be broken down into sugar but why do you get sick and get the sweats and get nausea and vomiting which is what i got last time i tried to do a seven day fast after like this is about embarrassing like i was about 24 hours and i started getting the sweats and i started vomiting and i fasted i fasted three days before here and there i've done uh omad which is one meal a day i've done mm. like uh each uh alternate day eating but after 24 hours i just i started puking and i got this sweats and i had to get back to work soon so i just like well i'm gonna have to eat well, something you know, but I some people i've been told that it's something to do with toxins being released from your fat mm -hmm. but again i don't know which toxins i don't know if it's actually what's going on because it's only 24 hours so you're not burning that much fat yet I don't know. Yeah, I think that, and, and I agree with you in the sense that there's not a lot of evidence about this specific topic, but some people argue that when you get those kinds of symptoms in the first day to 24 to 72 hours, it's a sort of withdrawal from sugary meals. And, you know... I don't uh, again, know I don't know. I don't know what the why that withdrawal from sugary meals would lead to vomiting is that a, is that like a hypoglycemic episode where you kind of get shaking or no um, I, i again i i, I don't know it, it, it but it is a similar syndrome as you would have when you're stopping other drugs like this with mm. physiological withdrawal symptoms i'm not saying that this is what it is i'm just saying that this is what uh, people talk about, uh, sugar withdrawal. And the, let me tell you the truth. Like there was one time when I fasted for a few, like I think it was, I wasn't two days in um, mm. or three days in, I can't remember. But what mm. I do remember is that I started feeling like shit. I started mm. having really horrible headaches and I didn't vomit or have nauseous, but I started having a really, really bad headache 
and I would close my eyes and I would see cupcakes. And then, <laughs> and then I thought, is this a sugar thing? Because it was very, very like I was so heavily needing to have something with sugar. I didn't, if I would have had a piece of meat, I wouldn't have solved that craving. And it was a hundred percent a craving. And I was even thinking is I, I was having a heavy craving and I was having a heavy headache. And I was thinking, are these two separate things or are these part of the same thing? So I broke my fast. I had a cookie, headache solved, no more mm. like cravings for cupcakes anymore. Mm. And, and I don't know. I mean, just think about it. I, I, I don't uh, know. There's a lot of evidence about it. But what I do know is that there is no way we were eating this concentration of glucose mm. or fructose a hundred years ago this was just well, the only happening. way you could get that fructose was if like one person in the tribe climbed the tree smoked out the the honey from the beehive and brought that down so that was the only way that really occurred um it was interesting i had an experience one person in, needed to have the whole honey yeah one person probably like the most dominant people got it and the person that climbed the tree got some and you know they fought over it but um I was in Arnhem Land, which is far north um, of Australia, uh, and it's kind of a, an area you need permission to enter um, because it's it's like a sacred land for the Indigenous Australians. And I went on a bush tucker tour, and that was quite an experience for me going on this bush tucker tour because I went into the bush, and it was the middle of the dry season, so to see what uh, summer middle of the dry season means that uh, there were no fruit available. And most, like if you look for a bush apple, which was some of the traditional foods that they ate, they were that big. And some of the food, fruit only seasoned every second year. So they only came into season every second year. Um, so what did we eat? Well, there were, there were the animals that congregated around the billabongs. So magpie geese, bile snake, turtle which is very high in saturated fat and so there were definitely periods of time where they would have been having a ketogenic diet and then for other periods probably during the wet they would have had some fruits in there as well there were also some nuts that, that we dug out from roots under the ground in the mud it's quite uh, and you had to watch for crocodile tracks and it was quite an experience but it really made me think well we probably most of us fluctuated in and out of ketosis throughout the year. And that was a normal diet. We definitely didn't have uh, the ability to mill grains. So although grains were a part of ancient diets, um, Otzi the Iceman, who is the guy that was frozen and his remains were discovered, who is uh, uh, like... Uh, an ancient human, I can't remember how old, but definitely pre-agriculture. He had some grains in him in his little pouch. So there, there was definitely a source of nutrition, but one, it wasn't um, hybridized to be bigger, to have larger amounts of energy in them. And they were lowering uh, gluten than current grains are because gluten tastes nice. It makes food sticky and easy to, to deal with. And it wasn't processed. So it wasn't a major part of the human diet um, before 10 to 12,000 years ago when agriculture came across. So again, evolutionary biology and psychology, I think is if you want to be a scientist and look at the science, you, you should, 
like we definitely need evidence when we're dealing with things and there are limitations to evolutionary biology and psychology because some of the limitations are oh well it only made you survive till uh you were old enough to reproduce and then it has no benefit Although the counter argument to that is that there's the grandfather effect and grandmother effect, which is children that had grandparents were more likely to survive because those grandparents could support the parents and pass on their wisdom, et cetera. So there may have been some evolutionary benefit to having humans live longer than necessary just to bring up children. Um, and the other change is uh, we lived in tribes of 150 and now we live in a tribe of 8 billion. So you have to say, well, you know, vaccines didn't exist back then, but we also didn't have like 8 billion people that could all uh, travel internationally and give each other smallpox or polio or COVID. So um, you have to take things in, in that kind of context. I was going to touch on meditation, but is there something you wanted to touch on? Sure. a hundred. Hey, we, we're free to talk about whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this like, let me ask you something else that I wanted to ask you. Um, okay, so what, what the main reason that it sounds like you're doing a seven-day fasting is for weight loss. Is there any other reason? And I would love for you to talk a little bit about the evidence based on metabolism and just overall longevity in fasting or whatever okay. it is that, you, that your main arguments are for the benefits of fasting. I wouldn't say weight loss was the first thing I mentioned. Um, and, but that's not the only thing. So okay. definitely the mental clarity I have is probably better than when I'm eating um, because uh, I don't have this fluctuation of blood sugars and switching in and out of ketosis. So I'm just in ketosis, my brain's burning ketones. Um, yeah. And or my brain is using ketones for fuel, which is why, uh, what's his name? Roger Cahill, I think his name was. Uh, he did a study in the 50s or 60s where he fasted a whole group of individuals. Wouldn't be ethically approved nowadays. And then at the end of this long fast, definitely enough to deplete all your glucose and glycogen, he injected them with insulin. So if you did that to a type two diet, type one diabetic, what would you expect? Well, type one diabetic with almost no sugar, I inject them with insulin. Well, it, there would be no resistance to the insulin. You would, if you have, if you are in a really big fast and you don't have a lot of sugar in your body, what the little that remains in your bloodstream could give you a really bad hypoglycemic shock. You get um, a hypoglycemic coma and then you die. That's what would happen to a type one diabetic and probably to most people on a standard diet that are primarily used to burning glucose as fuel. You inject them with insulin and probably, and even to someone fasting, the reason why I'm not going into ketoacidosis is because I'm still able to produce insulin and insulin is required to utilize ketones throughout the body. So insulin is not only required to utilize glucose, it's also required to utilize ketones. So that's why uh, fasting is a completely different thing. And I'm not recommending it without medical supervision um, to anyone really, 
uh, this is not medical advice. I'm not your doctor. No patient interaction has been informed. But um, but this is something where if a if a diabetic was a type one diabetic, especially was to do this and go on a prolonged fast, if they were taking their normal insulin, they'd probably die. Um, and if they weren't taking their normal insulin, yeah, who knows what would happen? It would be you'd have to. It's a uh, it's messy because they're already metabolically deranged. Uh, but this is a way of keeping myself metabolically flexible. And this is again, that you stress versus distress. Like you talked about sleep earlier and I think you're absolutely right. I know that when I'm physically training hard, when I'm working out, I need eight or I feel I need eight to nine hours or I used to. Um, and, but that comes at the cost of other things you could be doing. Now, the argument is if you're sleeping enough, uh, you'll be more effective and efficient at what you're doing throughout the day. And that's true. But if you're already effective and efficient, then the only way you can get more time, if you're not wasting your time on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, um, is sleeping less. And well, that's, at, at that, some that stage, there's a bit, on, the, on the tasks that you would want. There's a marginal done. utility cost. Like you can't, you can't be a brain surgeon and not sleep and, and sleep eight hours a day. Like you've got to do on calls. You've got to come like you, I couldn't do GP obstetrics and get a phone call and say, Oh, your patient's in labor. She's, she's about to deliver. And I'm like, well, I've only had four hours so far. So I'll, I'll call you back. I mean, it's, it's life has some stresses in it and it's about managing all the different stresses. So I definitely wouldn't advocate um, reducing sleep if you're also eating a whole bunch of hydrogenated seed oils or uh, sugar or uh, feeding your brain with negative energy from, and I use energy metaphorically, but negative vibes from social media and a whole bunch of other things. But I think you're And I'm not an advocate per se. I think you're like in an in in a in a very fine line because you you first of all yes you're right different persons need different types of uh, hours per night in order to feel functional like I let's say specifically talking about me if I sleep for four hours I'll be functional tomorrow I'll be maybe a little bit cranky. And there will be mm. periods of time where I'll be like nodding off a little bit if you if there's not something exciting going on. I can be mm. I can function very well on six hours. I may mm. feel a little bit annoyed in the morning, and but then I have a cup of coffee and I'm 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 perfect. Seven hours, perfect. Eight hours, perfect. Nine hours, I'm a little bit slower than usual, and and whatever. Like I can reduce the amount of hours. Uh, over a period of time but there's going to be an emotional and mental toll that is not going to be sustainable and yes you're right you you you're partially right in my opinion yes in in our in the current construct of our society you can't be a neurosurgeon resident and and sleep well every day like even as a psychiatrist when i was a resident or even when i was a well i'm still a fellow but when i was a, a, doing a lot of call I wasn't going to be sleeping good hours all of the time. And that took a toll. I was overall mm. kind of cranky, less emotionally mm. available. Mm, for sure. I noticed that too. that's the first thing for me that went when I started getting sleep deprived as a, as a re registrar, which is equivalent to a resident in the US, is um, my 
empathy got has gone. And exactly. as as a general practitioner, that's like wait, our main think. our main medication. Our main medication we provide to patients is empathy. And if I don't get enough sleep, then I'm just not a good general practitioner. Exactly. Now, in order to finish that idea about the, the things that you can do over a period of time, what I would argue is that that's true. Time is finite. And there are, the more productive you, you become, the more things that are available to your dis, in your disposal. And, and, and you want more and you want to be more productive and you want to do all these things. And then suddenly you have less time and you have to be efficient about it. And you have to really um, think you have to say no to some things sometimes, but I would say that a, a better way uh, of optimizing your time that is that doesn't take away from your sleep would be um, tertiarizing some of the things that you need to do. Like you mean outsourcing? Exactly, outsourcing, mm. and and then and so that's the way that I think. I ideally. Uh, I, I first worked to get in, into a, a financial position so that I can outsource as many things yes. as I can in my life. And, then, and so for the, for the mum that um, is a single mum and has to work two jobs to feed her children, that's not an option, right? She has to no. get into that financial position first before she can outsource. I guess what I'm trying to say is, one, some people don't have that luxury. And yeah. two, the most effective or the most productive people in our society are not getting eight hours sleep. So the, if you're talking about the top 0.1%, the, I don't know, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, whatever, um, they are not getting eight hours of sleep. They yeah, are, and, and then let me and, refute and, what you said about this mother, that, that it's not an option. I think that this mother that has two jobs and has to take care of the kid uh, and sleeping more is not an option. That's not okay. Like I would no, never- No, I'm not saying that's okay, but, oh, but okay. it's what's necessary for her in that period of her life to get forward. And maybe, maybe we should have better social circumstance or social supports for those individuals but yeah. um in the real world sometimes we have to deal with less sleep and mm -hmm. i think it comes down to the individual and this is how i try and run my practices like i give the patients the information and then i'm saying look the the optimal amount of alcohol for any individual from a pure health perspective is zero mm -hmm. now Australian guidelines recommend, you know, two alcohol-free days a week and no more than four in any one session. But what, and that's kind of a trade-off because it's a cultural thing. And maybe for you, the optimal amount might be two a day or two a week, because that way, that's how you meet with your friends and you don't lose your social circle. So again, it's about weighing up different costs and benefits. And I think when it comes to sleep as well, talking about say depression, if the part of the reason you're depressed is because you haven't dealt with your basic finances or you're not looking after your health and you're not exercising, you're not able to go out and walk or you haven't done your tax return in three years, maybe there's a couple of nights where you need to only get like four, five, six hours of sleep to get those things done. But in the long oh, term, I, like you absolutely yeah. need to, one, deal with your own responsibilities, but then two, you need to look after your number one responsibility is looking after your own health. Because if you don't have to, if you can't look after your own health, 
then society has to look after you. And for me, that's where mindfulness and meditation is really useful. Like having that mindfulness to be able to be totally present Mm -hmm. and kind of like for me, I'm the hardest period of my life was two years ago when I got divorced. Um, Nine and a half year relationship, or no, 12 year relationship, nine and a half year marriage. Um, I was very religious prior and during most of the marriage, uh, like uh, Coptic Christian. And so this was part of my identity, part of the reason why I left specialist training like neurosurgery was because I didn't really think that was useful for a married man, et cetera. And then evolutionary psychology came in and said, no, you haven't taken into this into account and this marriage is ending. And wait, wait, wait. the way I dealt with that, uh-huh. go on. No, I, I, I just like was wondering, so you thought that doing a, being a training, were you training residencies that what you thought that was not good for your marriage? Is that what you said? Oh, it wasn't. I was doing 80 hour weeks and she was also a specialist in training. Um, and so there were notes in the fridge. We'd see each other more in theater than we would in at home. Um, and I was also doing it from a point of ego. So mm-hmm. I was doing my training because I didn't feel like I was enough and I wanted to prove myself to people around me. I also really enjoyed neurology and really enjoyed surgery, but the, the reason I was doing it or a big, or what became the main thing was I needed to get this thing to prove that I was enough. And because I made it such a thing that I needed, self-sabotage occurred and I didn't get it. Um, And then it bred resentment and resentment bred like contempt and divorce. Um, But understanding kind of the evolutionary psychology point of view and how that affects attraction was really a useful tool for me. And then one of the first things I did was download Sam Harris's waking up app after um, I got divorced. So that was something where, so I'm not sure how familiar you are with Sam Harris. Yeah, I I know who he is. Yeah. So basically he's an atheist um, neuroscientist who doesn't do any neuroscience now is mostly a podcaster and interviewer and an author. Um, and has written a lot about mindfulness and politics. And he's gotten into uh, trouble both with the right wing and the left wing for one, being critical of Islam, and then two, being very critical of Trump. Um, But he is very much about authenticity and uh, not lying. And kind of, I I respect him from the point of view that he he maintains his own intellectual kind of, um, I guess authenticity is the best word I can come up with. So he's got this apolitical app called the Waking Up app, and he's written a book called Waking Up as well, which is a basically an atheist perspective on spiritualism and mindfulness and the experience of consciousness and how we can be the observing self and not the experiencing self um, or how you can pay more attention to that observing self. And so he had kind of like an introductory startup where you did... 50 meditations and each was 10 minutes and it was just like a little bit of training in how to be more mindful. And I'd meditated prior, mostly through 
uh, mostly visualization type meditation. And so this was more of a, rather than a focus type meditation or a visualization type meditation, this was more an open awareness type meditation, which um, I found incredibly useful. And I try and utilize throughout my life. It's definitely helped me with my own internal validation. And when I'm doing something stressful, whether that would be a telephone job interview or um, introducing myself to someone from a romantic point of view or a business point of view, um, I don't have to put my own validation on them. And I'm not doing it from a point of ego, which is about what other people think of me, but I'm doing it from a point of self-esteem, which is what I think of myself. And so that's helped a bit. Um, I think the next step for me personally is more some embodiment type meditation because Sam Harris is very intellectual and cognitive and finding a way to kind of get more into your body, so to speak, and just because that's kind of the connection to your emotions is feeling how your body's feeling. And if you can feel what's going on in your body, or what do you think as a psychiatrist? I mean, I've read a lot about, uh, there are books like The Body Keeps the Score um, and Awaking the Tiger from that, talking, that talk about that emotions are tied up in the body. And if you don't kind of physically release those emotions, um, it, it builds up tension there. Yeah, I think that's, so, so evidence that this guy that wrote that book, Waking the Tiger, I'm forgetting his name right now. I think Leviton or something? Uh, Daniel Leviton? Oh, Levin. Levin, Levin is his last name. Peter and, Levin. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think there, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, evidence is just starting to build on that specific topic. But but yeah, 100%. Don't you, mm. like, just from an empirical standpoint, from like an... Uh, when you're walking down the street, you do you see the body posture of the people that are walking down the street? Can't you tell their emotional mind state just from the posture, just from the way mm. that they move, just from the, the the expressions that they make with their hands and their body mm. and the way, that, the, the way that they look at you or don't look at you? Uh, and all of these things talk about an inner expression of internal mind state and then what you're specifically talking about is trauma and mm. and, and 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 like some sort of uh, the trauma kind of like trapped in the body or the body being a manifestation you know we think of this brain as something separate from the body when mm. which is fine i mean conceptually makes sense there's nerves there's there's meat there's bones so they're, they're, they're like different things but there's nerve endings that project from the brain everywhere in your body and and there's uh, evidence that people that who are quadriplegic actually have less emotional um lability and less breadth of emotions as well because again it's it's one nervous system it's not two or three different nervous systems the enteric nervous system is connected to your peripheral nervous system and your your central nervous system it's all it's all connected a hundred percent and then also we are we, we 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 base our society and our thinking well, we base our conversations, our way of communications, everything that we do in logic. And then mm. we think that our brain body needs to go through a logical 
like uh, how do you say it? like a almost like a word by word uh, mechanism to heal itself, whereas mm. that's that, that doesn't necessarily rings true. Like you are a human being that dreams things that make no sense, that feel things randomly, and then your mind through the whatever societal conceptual way of thinking that has been taught to you then you try to through mm. that understand what the body is doing whereas no like the body does the thing that the body does and the mind does the thing that the mind does and it's great to try to understand it through the uh, through the reason that we have conceptually created as a society of human beings but but that, but that, that it, it's not like your body, your brain is not going to tell you, hey, this is a problem that I have. And so why don't you do this thing in order to make it better? No, the body's like going to twitch or it's yeah. going to like do something or it's going to give you like a, like a very like sudden imagery or a sudden uh, re uh, memory. And that has something to do with this trauma thing. But then we're so stuck in the conceptual reasoning way of dealing with life that we yeah. bypass it, forget it, ignore it, and then it comes, it, it adds up, and then it just becomes something else. And then you, you have like a contracture or something. Or we're rational to the point of being irrational. We think we're so logical when actually, if you look at sales, it's all about changing the way the person feels. And if you look at negotiation, it's about it's not just about the number in the negotiation or the best, the batner or the zopo. No, it's about ego. It's about uh, having a sense of power or sense of control or sense of safety. Um, and in a lot of persuasion and even relationship um, circles, they say, change their mood, not their mind, right? And I've even heard that being applied to yourself. Like if you are meant to go to the gym and you're feeling real lethargic and you don't want to go to the gym, don't try and rationalize it to yourself. That never works. Just change your mood, play some music. Uh, go for a dance. You know, Tony Robbins would talk about emotion. Emotion creates emotion. Do something that gets you in a state where you're ready to do things. Now, obviously, you're not always going to be in the state to do things, and you should be able to do the right thing from a moral choice because this is the right thing to do at this point. And sometimes you're just going to go through the motions, but often it's better to do it in a state where you're just you're just doing it. Yeah, I I think that you bring a good point. You you wanna trick yourself into do the thing that you have predetermined being good for you. Your emotions are not always going to be useful to you in the immediate term. And yet mm. ignoring them is also not a good thing. Like mm. you, you should do this. So let's say a good example would be, so right after we talk today, I'm going to the gym and maybe yep. I won't be feeling like going to the gym and maybe I like, I'm a little bit angry. And, mm. and then I'm like, uh, I have to do some. I'm sorry. I'm and... sorry about that. I didn't try and make you angry deliberately. Yeah. 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 You haven't made me angry. So, <laughs> so then I have all these things going on in my mind and I can be like, Oh, I'm so annoyed that I need to like finish packing and all do all these things. And maybe I wouldn't sleep as many hours as I would like. And then maybe if I just didn't go to the gym or whatever, mm. blah, 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 blah. like I could just be angry and go to the gym angry. It's okay. Mm. Like I can do both things. Uh, oh, going to the gym angry is the best. Oh, I love going to the gym angry. Uh, yeah. If I know I'm angry, I'll just I'll just set up the deadlifts and I'll start deadlifting. <laughs> in, in the like, it, it is a good lesson 
to understand that our short-term emotions are not necessarily um, wishing the best for our long-term goals. And the only thing that we can do, we can do right now and we don't recover right now. So if I have to go to the gym right now, I would do, regardless of my emotional situation, it would be best if I just went to the gym because I'm going to feel mm. better about myself after and probably during. And maybe, as you say, I play a good song and maybe start moving silly or talking crazy. Like maybe I'll, like, I'll get myself in the move to want to go to the gym too. Mm. Um, I, I agree. I think that knowing how to motivate yourself into doing things that are not particularly exciting in the moment is very useful. And it's and also sometimes, useful. yeah, and sometimes it's good to do things even when you're not motivated, which again is one of the reasons why I think coming back to what you said about stress, we were designed for stress. We evolved in a situation where there was constant stress about us. And I think many of the diseases we have nowadays is because things are too comfortable, they're too easy. We don't even get bored anymore. If we're in the queue somewhere at a bank or whatever, you just pull your phone out. You don't even think about it because there's instant stimulation and entertainment there, but you don't have that space to think. Um, and as far as physically, uh, if you don't subject yourself to an external stress, which the environment previously did, if you don't go to the gym, if you don't run, if you don't do yoga, Pilates, jujitsu, whatever, then you're basically becoming less and less resilient, mm -hmm. more and more fragile. And that, and that because our mind and body is physically connected, uh, will change the way you think and mm -hmm. will make you more prone to illness and make you more prone to COVID. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, all, it's all related. Yeah. And it's it, and, and an, an emotional correlation to that is if you avoid feeling, you know, you know how there negative are emotions. Yeah, negative emotions are always potentially there, mm. and they tend to point out, as you were saying earlier today, towards things that you're neglecting about yourself or others mm. in terms of your emotional growth. Mm. And so, if you're able to just like go and watch the thing that makes you feel annoyed and are able to displace your ego enough that you're able to understand this is something that I maybe I, I'm, I'm getting annoyed because of this thing and, and and I don't like feeling vulnerable and I'd rather just not deal with it that or I'd rather like just be uncomfortable and talk about the thing that is making me feeling annoyed and, and vulnerable like th there are all these things that you can choose to do and you're right like you have to like push yourself out of your comfort zone in order to deal with them in order to grow in order to become more authentic like sam harris would be and and ultimately all of these things are just for the purposes of being in the present moment enjoying it like not being mm. in your thoughts, not being thinking like, what do I need to do? What have I not done? What am I, mm. blah, 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 blah. or being very angry or very sad or no, you're in the moment talking in this particular moment. We're talking, having a, like a very interesting multi-topic conversation. Oh my God, it's going everywhere. It's nuts. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even sure how you're going to label this, this interview. It's like, Tim Ibrahim talks about stuff. Talks about everything. Talks about fasting, 
spirituality. Um, I didn't even finish the riff on fasting, but I think mostly the fasting thing is about dealing with resilience, reducing decision fatigue, caloric deficit, um, and getting into ketosis and then autophagy, which I didn't really touch on. But uh, there is this dude uh, called Thomas Seyfried, who has written a book called Cancerous Metabolic Disease. He's a professor at, I think, Boston University in mm -hmm. some sort of molecular science. And he's done a lot of research on rats. Uh, mm -hmm. And in rats, if you fast them for a prolonged period of time, they get less types of cancers. Now, no studies think, in human beings, but I don't think there's much harm in trying for me. I think there's research going on specifically right now. And well, before I talk about that, you, you, mm. you referred to that autophagy. So basically mm. the concept of it is that when you, so cells multiply, all, all the cells of your body multiply. And then if you, but in order to multiply, they need food. And so when this, when you starve yourself through fasting, what ends up happening is that it, the cells in your body go into this like, um, okay, we don't have a lot of energy. Let's be quiet for a little bit and like just let you survive this period of time. But cancerous cells, which we all have, uh, every once in a while because we undergo mutations, we eat shit that makes our body go out of whack a little bit. We have radiation. We when we walk out the sun, we eat toxins from like the smoke of the cars, from processed foods. There's so many things that can go wrong. Even our mm. our own body starts working less and less and less effectively mm. as we grow older. So we produce cancerous cells, but our immune system tends to like take care of it before it becomes actually cancer. But mm. in this specific case, uh, you're fasting and your cells are in some a sort of high hibernation mode. Mm. And so uh, the cancer cells don't do that. They just keep replicating. They keep replicating it in the setting of having no metabolites. So they themselves kill themselves through the energy of replication um, mm. without having the nutrients. So they, in some way, they just like put themselves in the situation where they get destroyed. They, they, they self-destroy. And I think that's the concept of autophagy. Is that, I, I, am I missing something there? Yeah, that's more or less it. Um, that's, that's as good a summary as I could put down. I would say that yeah. not all cells replicate. It's mm -hmm. mostly as in adults, especially, I mean, nerve cells don't generally replicate, although they've found that there are stem cells in the hippocampus and you can create new brain mm -hmm. cells. We used to think that wasn't the case. Um, so there is a constant process between building and repair. And the thinking was that you used to go through a lot of cellular cleanup when you were in the fasted state and you'd repair and use damaged proteins. Uh, and then when you were eating, when you were in the fed state, you would lay down new proteins and build. And because of an abnormal amount of food availability and the fact that everywhere you walk, there's an abundance of food. We're kind of victims of our own success now. And we don't ever get to get into that stage of autophagy and um, cellular repair. Are you okay? And You're getting tired. No, no, not at all. I was just like okay. stretching okay. out a little bit. Yeah, it's um, good. You got to kind of do the whole. <laughs> yeah. And then what you were talking about cancer, I think there's some research ongoing that says that, that talks about potential reduction of symptoms of, of chemotherapy 
What yes, if you undergo fasting during this or period of even time? a ketogenic diet? Interesting, no. Um, and some cancers have been shown. Oh, again, mostly anecdotal. Some cancers have been shown to regress on a ketogenic diet, but not all. It's definitely not a replacement to um, conventional treatment at this stage. And a lot of people have found that they can tolerate chemotherapy better. But are there studies actually out there that show that on a ketogenic diet or fasted, you tolerate chemotherapy better? Yeah, th th that's correct. Hmm. Which one was it, fasted yeah. or keto? I think it's fasted. I saw this on a recent documentary around a, a year ago. Um, Jamie, we I put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I'll check it out. I think yeah. I could be wrong, but I think this is a, a UCLA study that was undergoing yeah. at the time. Um, but yeah, I'll have to like fact check on that. But I like I think that's what what where it's coming from. Um, yeah, man. So normally we talk for like normally I try to keep the podcast episodes for around an hour because I'm then so it's sorry. I'm so sorry. No, I'm loving this conversation. The only, <laughs> the only reason I try to keep it for an hour is because it's easier for me to post it on IGTV. Now, mm. what I have to do is make it like part one and part two. So it's okay. Now you're screwed. <laughs> um, I've had fun. I've had a lot of fun talking and maybe we should riff some other time as well. A hundred percent. You should come yeah. back to the show and whenever yep. you come to the US, let me know and we'll hang out. For sure. Maybe in the next five years, things will normalize and then I'll, then I'll do that. Yeah. Hopefully. All right, um, all right, Tim, it's been a pleasure as always. I'm glad that uh, the thing with your job came through and yeah, I, you know what? you you sound surprisingly sharp for somebody on their fifth day of fasting. Um, <laughs> Mental clarity so, is another benefit. Yeah, a hundred percent. And mm. no, but I appreciate you taking the time today to talk with me and have a good one. Cheers, man. Cheers.